Chapter 9 of The Skylark of Valeron by E. E. Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 When Skylark Three left Norleman in pursuit of the fleeing vessel of Ravendal, the Fenachrone scientist, the occasion had been made an event of worldwide interest. From their tasks everywhere had come the mental laborers to that stupendous event. To it had come also practically en masse the youngsters from the country of youth, and even those who, their life work done, had betaken themselves to the placid nirvana of the country of age, returned briefly to the country of study to speed upon its epoch-making way that stupendous messenger of civilization. But in sharp contrast to the throngs of Norlaminians who had witnessed the take-off of three, Roval alone was present when Duquesne and Loring wafted themselves into the control room of its gigantic counterpart. Duquesne had been in a hurry, and in the driving urge of his haste to go to the rescue of his friend Seaton, he had so completely occupied the mind of Roval that the aged scientists had had no time to do anything except transfer to the brain of the terrestrial pirate the knowledge which he would so soon require. Of the real reason for this overweening haste, however, Roval had not the slightest inkling. Duquesne well knew what the ancient physicist did not even suspect, that if any one of the several Norlaminians, particularly one Drasnik, first of psychology, should become informed of the proposed flight, that flight would not take place. For Drasnik, that profound student of the mind, would not be satisfied with Duquesne's story without a thorough mental examination, an examination which Duquesne well knew he could not pass. Therefore Roval alone saw them off, but what he lacked in numbers he made up in sincerity. I am very sorry that the exigencies of the situation did not permit a more seemly leave-taking, he said in parting but I can assure you of the cooperation of every one of us whose brain can be of any use. We shall watch you, and shall aid you in any way we can. Farewell to you, Ravol, my friend, and my benefactor, and to all Norlamen, Duquesne replied solemnly. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you have done for us and for Seton, and for what you may yet be called upon to do for all of us. He touched a stud and in each of the many skins of the great cruiser a heavy door drove silently shut, establishing a manifold seal. His hand moved over the controls, and the gigantic vessel tilted slowly upward until her narrow prow pointed almost directly into the zenith. Then, easily as a wafted feather, the unimaginable mass of the immense cruiser of space floated upward with gradually increasing velocity. Faster and faster she went, out beyond measurable atmospheric pressure, out beyond the outermost limits of the green system, swinging slowly into a right line toward the point in space where Seaton, his companions, and both their spaceships had disappeared. On and on she drove, now of high acceleration, the stars so widely spaced at first crowding closer and closer together as her speed long since incomprehensible to any finite mind, mounted to a value almost incalculable. Past the system of the Fenachrone she hurtled, 
past the last outlying fringe of stars of our galaxy, on and on into the unexplored, awesome depths of free and absolute space. Behind her the vast assemblage of stars comprising our island universe dwindled to a huge flaming lens, to a small but bright lenticular nebula, and finally to a mere point of luminosity. For days communication with Roval had been difficult, since, as the limit of projection was approached, it became impossible for the most powerful forces at Roval's command to hold a projection upon the flying vessel. In order to communicate, Roval had to send out a transmitting and receiving projection. As the distance grew still greater, Duquesne had done the same thing. Now it was becoming evident, by the wavering and fading of the signals, that even the two projections reaching out toward each other, though they were, would soon be out of touch, and Duquesne sent out his last message. There is no use in trying to keep in communication any longer, as our beams are falling apart fast. I am on negative acceleration now of an amount calculated to bring us down to maneuvering velocity at the point to which the inertia of Skylark II would have carried her, without power, at the time when we shall arrive there. Please keep a listening post established out this way as far as you can, and I will try to reach it if I find out anything. If I fail, goodbye. The poor dumb cluck, Duquesne sneered as he shut off his sender and turned to Loring. That was so easy that it was a shame to take it, but we're certainly set to go now. I'll say so, Loring agreed enthusiastically. That was a nice touch, Chief, telling him to keep a lookout out here. He'll do it with forces, of course, not in person, but at that it'll keep him from thinking about the earth until you're all set. You've got the idea, doll. If they had any suspicion at all that we were heading back for the Earth, they could block us yet easily enough. But if we can get back inside the solar system before they smell a rat, it will be too late for them to do anything. He rotated his ship through an angle of ninety degrees upon her longitudinal axis and applied enough downward acceleration to swing her around in such an immense circle that she would approach the galaxy from the side opposite to that from which she had left it. Then, during days that lengthened into weeks and months of dull and monotonous flight, the two men occupied themselves, each in his own individual fashion. There was no piloting to do and no need for vigilance, for space to a distance of untold billions of miles was absolutely and utterly empty. Loring, unemotional and incurious, performed what simple routine housekeeping there was to do, ate, slept, and smoked. During the remainder of the time he simply sat still, stolidly doing nothing whatever, until the time should come when Duquesne would tell him to perform some specific act. Duquesne, on the other hand, dynamic and energetic to his ultimate fiber, found not a single idle moment. His newly acquired knowledge was so vast that he needs must explore and catalogue his own brain, to be sure that he would be able instantly to call upon whatever infinitesimal portion of it might be needed in some emergency. 
The fifth-order projector, with its almost infinitely complicated keyboard, must needs be studied until its every possible resource of integration, permutation, and combination held for him no more secrets than does his console from a master of the pipe organ. Thus it was that the galaxy loomed ahead, a stupendous lens of flame, before Duquesne had really realized that the long voyage was almost over. To his present mentality, working with his newly acquired fifth-order projector, the task of locating our solar system was but the work of a moment, and to the power and speed of his new spaceship, the distance from the galaxy's edge to the Earth was merely a longish jaunt. When they approached the Earth it appeared as a softly shining greenish half-moon, with fleecy wisps of cloud obscuring its surface here and there with gleaming ice-caps making of its poles two brilliant areas of white, it presented an arrestingly beautiful spectacle indeed, but Duquesne was not interested in beauty. Driving down from the empty reaches of space north of the ecliptic, he observed that Washington was in the morning zone, and soon his great vessel was poised and motionless, invisibly high above the city. His first act was to throw out an ultra-powerful detector screen, with automatic trips and tighteners, around the entire solar system, out far beyond the outermost point of the orbit of Pluto. Its every part remained unresponsive. No foreign radiation was present in all that vast volume of space, and Duquesne turned to his henchmen with cold satisfaction stamped upon his every hard lineament. No interference at all, doll. No ships, no projections, no spy rays, nothing, he said. I can really get to work now. I won't be needing you for a while, and I imagine that, after being out in space so long, you would like to circulate around with the boys and girls for a couple of weeks or so. How are you fixed for money? Well, Chief, I could do with a small binge and a few nights out among them, if it's all right with you, Loring admitted. As for money, I've got only a couple hundred on me, but I can get some at the office. We're quite a few paydays behind, you know. Never mind about going to the office. I don't know exactly how well Brookings is going to like some of the things I'm going to tell him, and you're working for me, you know, not for the office. I've got plenty. Here's five thousand, and you can have three weeks to spend it in. Three weeks from today I'll call you on your wireless phone and tell you what to do. Until then, do as you please. Where do you want me to set you down? Uh, perhaps the Perkins roof will be clear at this hour? Good as any. Thanks, Chief. And without even a glance to assure himself that Duquesne was at the controls, Loring made his way through the manifold airlocks and calmly stepped out into ten thousand feet of empty air. Duquesne caught the falling man neatly with an attractor beam and lowered him gently to the now deserted roof of the Perkins Café, that famous restaurant which had been planned and was maintained by the World Steel Corporation as a blind for its underground activities. He then seated himself at his console and drove his projection down into the innermost private office of World Steel. He did not at first thicken the pattern into visibility, but remained invisible, studying Brookings, now president of that industrial octopus, the World Steel Corporation. 
The magnate was seated, as of yore, in a comfortably padded chair at his massive and ornate desk, the focus and the center of a maze of secret private communication bands and even more secret private wires. For steel was a growing octopus, and its voraciously insatiable maw must be fed. Brookings had but one motto, one tenet. Get it. By fair means at times, although this method was employed but seldom, by bribery, corruption, and sabotage as the usual thing, by murder, arson, mayhem, and all other known forces of foul play if necessary or desirable, Steele got it. To be found out was the only sin, and that was usually only venial instead of cardinal, for it was because of that sometimes unavoidable contingency that Steele not only retained the shrewdest legal minds in the world, but also wielded certain subterranean forces sufficiently powerful to sway even supposedly incorruptible courts of justice. Occasionally, of course, the sin was cardinal, the transgression irremediable, the court unreachable. In that case the octopus lost a very minor tentacle, but the men really guilty had never been brought to book. Into the center of this web, then, Duquesne drove his projection and listened. For a whole long week he kept at Brookings's elbow, day and night. He listened and spied, studied and planned, until his now gigantic mentality not only had grasped every detail of everything that had developed during his long absence, and of everything that was then going on, but also had planned meticulously the course which he would pursue. Then, late one afternoon, he cut in his audio and spoke. I knew, of course, that you would try to double-cross me, Brookings, but even I had no idea that you would make such an utter fool of yourself as you have. As he heard the sneering, cutting tone of the scientist's well-remembered voice, the magnate seemed to shrink visibly his face turning a pasty gray as the blood receded from it. Duquesne, he gasped, where are you? I'm right beside you, and I have been for over a week. Duquesne thickened his image to full visibility and grinned sardonically as the man at the desk reached hesitantly toward a button. Go ahead and push it and see what happens. Surely even you are not dumb enough to suppose that a man with my brain, even the brain I had when I left here, would take any chances with such a rat as you have always shown yourself to be. Brookings sank back into his chair, shaking visibly. What are you, anyway? You look like Duquesne, and yet— His voice died away. That's better, Brookings. Don't ever start anything that you can't finish. You are, and always were, a physical coward. You're one of the world's best at bossing dirty work from a distance, but as soon as it gets close to you, you fold up like an accordion. As to what this is that I am talking and seeing from, it is technically known as a projection. You don't know enough to understand it even if I should try to explain it to you, which I have no intention of doing. It's enough for you to know that it is something that has all the advantages of an appearance in person and none of the disadvantages. None of them. Remember that word. 
Now I'll get down to business. When I left here I told you to hold your cockeyed ideas in check, that I would be back in less than five years with enough stuff to do things in a big way. You didn't wait five days, but started right in with your pussy-footing and gumshoeing around with the usual result. Instead of cleaning up the mess, you made it messier than ever. You see, I've got all the dope on you. I even know that you were going to try to jip me out of my back pay. Oh, no, doctor, you are mistaken, really, Brookings assured him. He was fast regaining his usual poise, and his mind was again functioning in its wanted devious fashion. We have really been trying to carry on until you got back exactly as you told us to, and your salary has been continued in full, of course. You can draw it all at any time. I know I can, in spite of you. However, I am no longer interested in money. I never cared for it except for the power it gave, and I have brought back with me power far beyond that of money. Also, I have learned that knowledge is even greater than power. I have also learned, too, however, that in order to increase my present knowledge, yes, even to protect that which I already have, I shall soon need a supply of energy a million times greater than the present peak output of all the generators on Earth. As a first step in my project, I am taking control of steel right now, and I am going to do things the way they should be done. But you can't do that, doctor, protested Brookings volubly. We will give you anything you ask, of course, but— But nothing, interrupted Duquesne. I'm not asking a thing of you, Brookings. I'm telling you. You think you are. Brookings, goaded to action at last, pressed a button savagely, while Duquesne looked on in calm contempt. Behind the desk, ports flashed open, and rifles roared thunderously in the confined space. Heavy bullets tore through the peculiar substance of the projection and smashed into the plastered wall behind it, but Duquesne's contemptuous grin did not change. He moved slowly forward, hands outthrust. Brookings screamed once, a scream that died away to a gurgle as fingers of tremendous strength closed about his flabby neck. There had been four riflemen on guard. Two of them threw down their weapons and fled in panic, amazed and terrified at the failure of their bullets to take effect. Those guards died in their tracks as they ran. The other two rushed upon Duquesne with weapons clubbed. But steel barrel and wooden stock alike rebounded harmlessly from that pattern of force. Fiercely driven knives penetrated it but left no wound, and the utmost strength of the two brawny men could not even shift the position of the weird being's inhumanly powerful fingers upon the throat of their employer. Therefore they stopped their fruitless attempts at a rescue and stood dumbfounded. "'Good work, boys,' Duquesne commented. You've got nerve. That's why I didn't bump you off. You can keep on guarding this idiot here after I get done teaching him a thing or two. As for you, Brookings, he continued, loosening his grip sufficiently so that his victim could retain consciousness, I let you try that to show you the real meaning of futility. I told you particularly to remember 
that this projection has none of the disadvantages of a personal appearance. But apparently you didn't have enough brain power to grasp the thought. Now are you going to work with me the way I want you to, or not?" "'Yes, yes, I'll do anything you say,' Brookings promised. "'All right, then,' Duquesne resumed his former position in front of the desk. "'You are wondering why I didn't finish choking you to death, since you know that I am not at all squeamish about such things. I'll tell you. I didn't kill you because I may be able to use you. I'm going to make World Steel the real government of the Earth, and its president will therefore be dictator of the world. I do not want the job myself, because I will be too busy extending and consolidating my authority, and with other things, to bother about the details of governing a planet. As I have said before, you are probably the best manager alive today. But when it comes to formulating policies, you're a complete bust. I am giving you the job of world dictator under one condition, that you run it exactly as I tell you to." "'Ah, a wonderful opportunity, Doctor. I assure you that—' "'Just a minute, Brookings. I can read your mind like an open book. You are still thinking that you can slip one over on me. Know now, once and for all, that it can't be done. I am keeping on you continuously automatic devices that are recording every order that you give, every message that you receive or send, and every thought that you think. The first time you try any more of your funny work on me, I will come back here and finish up the job I started a few minutes ago. Play along with me and you can run the earth as you please, subject only to my direction and broad matters of policy. Try to double-cross me, and you pass out of the picture. Get me?" I understand you thoroughly. Brookings' agile mind flashed over the possibilities of Duquesne's stupendous plan. His eyes sparkled as he thought of his own place in that plan, and he became his usual blandly alert self. As world dictator I would, of course, be in a higher place than any that world steel, as at present organized, could possibly offer. Therefore, I will be glad to accept your offer without reservations. Now, if you will, go ahead and give me an outline of what you propose. I will admit that I did harbor a few mental reservations at first, but you have convinced me that you actually can deliver the goods. That's better. I will show you very shortly whether I can deliver. I have prepared full plans for the rebuilding of all our stations and setons into my new type of power plant, for the erection of a new plant at every strategic point throughout the world, and for interlocking all these stations into one system. Here they are. A bound volume of data and a mass of blueprints materialized in the air and dropped upon the desk. As soon as I have gone you can call in the chiefs of the engineering staff and put them to work." "'I perceive what seems to me to be obstacles,' Brookings remarked after his practiced eye had run over the salient points of the project, and he had leafed over the pile of blueprints. We have not been able to do anything with Seton's plants because of their enormous reserves of power, and his number one plant is to be the key station of our new network. Also, uh, there simply are not men enough to do this work. 
These are slack times, I know, but even if we could get every unemployed man we would still not have enough. And, by the way, what became of Seaton? He apparently has not been around for some time. You needn't worry about Seaton's plants. I'll line them up for you myself. As for Seaton, he was chased into the fourth dimension. He hasn't got back yet, and he probably won't, as I will explain to his crowd when I take them over. As for men, we shall have the combined personnel of all the armies and navies of the world. You think that even that force won't be enough, but it will. As you go over those plans in detail, you will see that by the proper use of dirigible forces we shall have plenty of manpower. How do you intend to subdue the armies and navies of the world? It would take too long to go into detail. Turn on that radio there and listen, however, and you'll get it all. In fact, being on the inside, you'll be able to do a lot of reading between the lines, but that no one else will. Also, what I am going to do next will settle the doubt that is still in your mind as to whether I've really got the stuff." The projection vanished, and in a few minutes every radio-receiving set throughout the world burst into stentorian voice. Duquesne was broadcasting simultaneously upon every channel from five meters to five thousand, using a wave of such tremendous power that even two-million-watt stations were smothered at the very bases of their own transmitting towers. "'People of Earth, attention!' the speakers blared. "'I am speaking for the World Steel Corporation. From this time on the governments of all nations of the Earth will be advised and guided by the World Steel Corporation. For a long time I have sought some method of doing away with the stupidities of the present national governments. I have studied the possibilities of doing away with war and its attendant horrors. I have considered all feasible methods of correcting your present economic system, under which you have had constantly recurring cycles of boom and panic. Most of you have thought for years that something should be done about all these things. You are not only unorganized, however, you are and always have been racially distrustful and hence easily exploited by every self-seeking demagogue who has arisen to proclaim the dawn of a new day. Thus you have been able to do nothing to improve world conditions. It was not difficult to solve the problem of the welfare of mankind. It was quite another matter, however, to find a way of enforcing that solution. At last I have found it. I have developed a power sufficiently great to compel worldwide disarmament and to inaugurate productive employment of all men now bearing arms, as well as all persons now unemployed, at shorter hours and larger wages than any heretofore known. I have also developed means whereby I can trace, with absolute certainty, the perpetrators of any known crime, past or present, and I have both the power and the will to deal summarily with habitual criminals. The revolution which I am accomplishing will harm no one except parasites upon the body politic. National boundaries and customs shall remain as they are now. Governments will be overruled only when and as they impede the progress of civilization. War, however, will not be tolerated. I shall prevent it not by killing the soldiers who would do the actual fighting, 
but by putting out of existence every person who attempts to foment strife. Those schemers I shall kill without mercy long before their plans shall have matured. Trade shall be encouraged and industry. Prosperity shall be worldwide and continuous because of the high level of employment and remuneration. I do not ask you to believe all this. I am merely telling you. Wait and see. It will come true in less than thirty days. I shall now demonstrate my power by rendering the Navy of the United States helpless without taking a single life. I am now poised low over the city of Washington. I invite the 70th Bombing Squadron, which I see is already taken to the air, to drop their heaviest bombs upon me. I shall move out over the Potomac so that the fragments will do no damage, and I shall not retaliate. I could wipe out that squadron without effort, but I have no desire to destroy brave men who are only obeying blindly the dictates of an outworn system. The spaceship, which had extended across the city from Chevy Chase to Anacostia, moved out over the river, followed by the relatively tiny bombers. After a while the entire countryside was shaken by the detonations of the world's heaviest projectiles, but Duquesne's cold, clear voice went on. The bombers have done their best, but they have not even marred the outer plating of my ship. I will now show you what I can do if I should decide to do it. There is an obsolete battleship anchored off the Cape, which was to have been sunk by naval gunfire. I direct a force upon it. It is gone, volatilized almost instantly. I am now over Sandy Hook. I am not destroying the coast defense guns, as I cannot do so without killing men. Therefore I am simply uprooting them and am depositing them gently upon the mud flats of the Mississippi River at St. Louis, Missouri. Now I am sending out a force to each armed vessel of the United States Navy wheresoever situated upon the face of the globe. At such speed as is compatible with the safety of the personnel, I am transporting those vessels through the air towards Salt Lake City, Utah. Tomorrow morning every unit of the American Navy will float in Great Salt Lake. If you do not believe that I am doing this, read in your newspaper tomorrow that I have done it. Tomorrow I shall treat similarly the navies of Great Britain, France, Italy, Japan, and the other maritime nations. I shall deal then with the naval bases of the world and with the military forces and their fortifications. I have already taken steps to abate the nuisance of certain widely known criminals and racketeers who have been conducting quite openly and flagrantly a reign of terror for profit. Seven of those men have already died, and ten more are to die tonight. Your homes shall be safe from the kidnapper, your businesses shall be safe from the extortioner and his skulking aid, the dynamiter. In conclusion, I tell you that the often-promised new era is here, not in words, but in actuality. Goodbye until tomorrow. Duquesne flashed his projection down into Brookings' office. Well, Brookings, that's the start. You understand now what I am going to do, and you know that I can do it. Yes, you undoubtedly have immense power and you have taken exactly the right course to give us the support of a great number of people who would ordinarily be bitterly opposed to anything we do. 
but that talk of wiping out gangsters and racketeers sounded funny coming from you. Why should it? We are now beyond that stage, and while public opinion is not absolutely necessary to our success, it is always a potent force. No program of despotism, however benevolent, can expect to be welcomed unanimously, but the course I have outlined would at least divide the opposition. Duquesne cut off his forces and sat back at the controls, relaxed, his black eyes staring into infinity. Earth was his, to do with as he wished, and he would soon have it so armed that he could hold it against the universe. Master of Earth! His highest ambition had been attained, or had it? The world, after all, was small, merely a moat in space. Why not be master of the entire galaxy? There was Normalin to be considered, of course. Norlamin! Norlamin would not like the idea, and would have to be pacified. As soon as he got the earth straightened out, he would have to see what could be done about Norlamin. End of chapter 9